0: you guys want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Revelation chapter two that's going to be our first passage um, so our theme this year I mean we we mentioned a lot and I think that's good that's why it's a theme um, is focusing on God's promises um, we want to do that in our study we want to do that in our reading, we want to do that in our mind, but we also um, have another purpose with that. Is that is to train ourselves to converse with people in terms of God's promises, bring their focus onto the fact that He's made promises. Um, but you know, I've I have found that there are um, a couple of different reasons why people don't aren't really moved by God's promises. Um, one being that uh, they don't have experience with people keeping promises. And so for them to hear a promise just sort of goes in one ear and out the other doesn't mean a whole lot. Um, And so they think, well, it's just a promise. It might happen, it might not. Um, And then there are are other people who, maybe they, they understand people keeping promises, but they can't comprehend the kind of promises God is making. Like, they think, well, okay, so God's just making some other promise like another person makes. You know, that's not going to solve my problems in this life. I need something greater. Um, so, with, without trying to tackle all of that at once, what, I, what I'd kind of like to do is just spend some time looking at specific promises God has made. And helping us understand the weight of them and how we can talk to people about, one, how God's promises are different than people's promises. Um, He never lies. The promise is always true. And that's hard for some people to accept. Um, But then also the fact that the things He's promising are not merely just something physical that you'll enjoy tomorrow and then it'll be gone. Um, so one promise we're going to look at, um, or I guess several promises that I will, I'll want to look at as time goes on, will come from Revelation, the letters to the churches. Um, and Josh actually spent a good bit of time going over the letters themselves and what was contained in the letters. I'm really just going to focus on kind of the last statement of each one. Sort of, I'm guilty of taking them out of context, but I'm just looking at the promises. Right, it's a promise. Um, And the first one I want to look at is in in Revelation 2, verse 7. This is the end of the letter to um, the church at Ephesus. After Jesus has described what's going going on there and and said what's good and said what's bad, um, he says in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now that seems like a really kind of odd promise, or maybe super specific promise. Um, you know what? What? What is this talking about? Well, you know, if you're familiar with the story of Genesis, you can't help but like think back to the Garden of Eden and what Jesus is referring to here. Um, what he's promising here. First, you know, make sure you understand what the promise is. To him who overcomes, I will grant, which means Jesus has the authority grant this right i will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of god well so it begs the question you know what's the tree of life why do i want to eat of it what's so great about that is this just some kind of you know symbol well i think yes it is and no it's not let's go back to genesis let's turn back to genesis chapter 2 and see what god said about the tree of life So in, in Genesis chapter 2, we're, uh, in verses 8 and 9, we see the tree of life mentioned and where it's at and, and, and where it came from. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, "...the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." So in the garden we you know people seem to only focus on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there's also the tree of life in the garden and we know what happens in Genesis um the temptation of Eve the sin the sin by Adam the fall uh the curses that God states and then at the end of that in Genesis chapter 3 beginning in verse 22 Again, this is one of those mysterious things. I'm not sure why God recorded it, but it's here for us like to see. Uh, Genesis 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out and at the east of the garden uh, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way, not to the garden, guard the way to the tree of life. Once man had sinned, the one thing God wanted to to separate them from was that tree of life. It's like that's the defining moment at which you have no right to the tree of life anymore. And he's serious about it. He's not. He doesn't now create command number two and say, okay, now that you're a bunch of sinners, here's your second command. Also, don't eat of this tree. No, he doesn't leave that on man's hands. He separates it. And he places a spiritual being, and a sword in the way. You're not getting to this tree. It's done. Mankind has been separated from everlasting life here. That's what God says it is, right? If he eats of this, he he might stretch out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So now we know from God's own words what the tree of life is. That's really, it's not just like, If I eat from it, I live this day, and then I eat from it tomorrow, and I live tomorrow. That's what food is, right? I mean, that's what normal food is. This is not normal food. This is the tree of life. You eat from this and you live forever, and God says, sinners have no right to that. That's what we're seeing here. So now, again, as we kind of go through this process, think about what Jesus is promising in Revelation 2. I will grant you to eat that fruit. That's a promise. That's not like if you can jump high enough and you can get it out of my hand, you can eat the fruit. It's not what he's saying. It says to him who overcomes, right? And overcomes is a big word. There's a lot wrapped up in that. But to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So now we're. St- I think when we look back at Eden, we're starting to get a, a picture. Of how big this promise is. Like, Jesus is saying, I'll move that cherubim out of the way. That flaming sword, you won't have to worry about that flaming sword. I'll remove it. I'll let you eat from that tree. So there are a few things I just want you to notice about this tree of life. Um, It wasn't under the ban. At the beginning, the only tree that was banned was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I think that's just a sad commentary on human decisions. You have a tree of life where there's no ban. And you go for the tree that's under the ban to be a sinner. And I'm not knocking Adam and Eve. I'm just saying that's what I do. Right? And that's what happened here. Every one of us has done that. We've looked at the tree of life. And we said, I know there's no ban for that, and I know it's eternal life, and I want to sin. Every one of us has done it. Jesus is saying if we can overcome, he'll allow us to have access to that tree that we, we forsook, we abandoned. Right? It's big. This is a promise men cannot make. No one in your life can make this promise. Jesus is making this promise. Right. Um, and like I said the, the, the final point I want to make about it is that God was serious about preventing men from getting to this tree he's just right. and while I can't explain all the ins and outs and whys it's plain from the way he speaks that he cannot allow and will not allow sinners to partake of that tree so that gives us another hint at what Jesus is promising when he says, He to him who overcomes, I will grant. That means he'll look at you like you're not a sinner. Knowing full well that you're a sinner, he will look at you as though you're pure. How can he do that? Right? Through his sacrifice. And we're not going to get into all the details of that, but. Again, I'm trying to help us think about this in the terms of promise and what he's promising. If sinners can't get access to this tree, then somehow or another he's going to look at me as though I'm not a sinner. Man can't promise you that. Only God can promise you that. Man can't accomplish that. Only God can accomplish that. And that's what he's stating you can't get around it. If Jesus is going to promise you access to the tree, then that's what it means. That's a big promise. Okay. So the tree is in no way accessible to us on our own. We can't go get into a fist fight with the cherub and win. Right? We can't wear some shield and this flaming sword's not going to cut through it. You're going to lose. Right? When God prevents you, you don't get there. And God was preventing it. Now Jesus is saying, I want to help you. It's the exact opposite. He's not just moving out of the way. He's like, I'm going to grant you that. Um, so I'm going to rephrase this instead of saying eating of the tree. I'm, just going, to, I'm going to start saying eternal life is what he's promising. And really that's hard for me because now I've got this whole baggage concept of eternal life that's wrapped up in the last 30 some odd years, right? But really, that's what he's saying is when you eat of this fruit, you will live forever. So that's eternal life. So when he says eternal life, now we need to start thinking about what he's giving us access to and how he's looking at us, right? He's giving us access to something that is forbidden to sinners, from the beginning, of, since they, they sinned, it's been forbidden. He's opening it up. And the way He's looking at you. right, As though you're just. And you're like Him. I mean, that's really what He's doing. He's looking at you like you're like Him. As pure as He is. It's not fair. <laughs> but that's what he's, He wants to do. Okay. So we're, we're going to talk about eternal life. I'm going to use that phrase, eternal life, to... Um, sum up these ideas, right? And now I want to look at some some passages in the New Testament, primarily where Jesus, somewhere Paul mentions it, primarily where Jesus talks about eternal life. Um, so let's look in John. A lot of these, in fact, I don't know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I've got seven different passages that are going to come from the book of John. So if you want to turn over to John um. That's where we'll be for a a little bit. The most famous one and the most obvious one is John 3.16. And I am not by any means mentioning every passage that talks about eternal life. John is just... When I started looking, John's just overweighted with it. Just packed with eternal life. It was really um, kind of surprising. I didn't realize it. But John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So now we have kind of this corollary to what overcoming means, right? Jesus in Revelation says, to him who overcomes, I will grant access to the tree. Now here, Jesus says, whoever believes in him shall not perish. So part of that overcoming is belief. You can't, like, say, well, I believe in me. And so, I'm just going to be granted access. Nope. You have to believe in him. And again, kind of like overcoming, believing in Jesus. I can't remember who said this. Maybe Maybe it was Ben. Somebody said a suitcase word. There are suitcase words in the Bible. Belief is a suitcase word. When you start opening up that suitcase, there's all kinds of things wrapped up in belief. It demands things of you. You don't just sit back and believe. No one sits in a chair with their feet propped up and believes. That's not belief. That's not the Bible belief. Right? That's acceptance of a fact. That's not belief in the Bible. Right? Belief demands that you do something. Okay? And that carries the... That, that's kind of in that idea of overcoming, right? You don't overcome in a lazy boy, do you? What do you overcome in a lazy boy? Like you take a nap in a lazy boy. That's all you do. You don't don't overcome anything. There's work, right? You've got to strive to overcome something. Well, you you have to strive in belief too. Okay? John 3, also in John 3, verse 36. Jesus says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Do you, see, do you see the two different words Jesus used there interchangeably? I love this verse. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not, it doesn't say believe, he who does not obey, will not have life, will not see life. So now, again, we have more information about what overcoming a belief is. Belief is equated with obedience. Jesus equates it right here. He says, if you believe, you'll have eternal life. Oh, however, if you don't obey, you won't have eternal life. He used them interchangeably in that text. To believe is to obey, period. To obey is to believe. Okay? Also in John um, chapter 4, the the passage that James read to us, this is the conversation Jesus is having with the woman at the well. Um, I mean, you want a case study in how to turn any situation into a a religious situation, a religious discussion, this is it. He sits down at a well because he's thirsty and someone comes up and he says, let me tell you about you know, everlasting water, eternal water. Water where you'll never thirst again. Right? Um, and then he gives her this, this image in verses 13 and 14. He says, everyone who drinks of this water, the water in the well that she's come to get, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him, shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So it's this idea that what Jesus gives you resides inside you now. You don't have to keep filling yourself. He fills you from within. And it kind of feeds this engine, right? For you to obtain eternal life or attain eternal life. not You're not attaining it by your own doing. He's doing it from within. He says the water I'm trying to give you will spring up within you to eternal life. Now you if someone put a well of water, literally physical water inside your stomach so that you never thirsted again, would you go around boasting about how great you were because you, you weren't thirsty? You didn't do that. You're not great it's the person who put it in you and figured out how to make it so you, you would never physically thirst again right you would sing that person's praises you'd send everybody to that guy and say, "Hey you need to go over here this you'll never have to drink water again you'll never be thirsty you know my skin is so soft and well you know whatever you get from hydration you'll be singing that person's praises right Well you can't it's the same thing with eternal life just because Jesus plants this well within you that's going to spring up to eternal life it's not that you were so great, and that you have achieved, in some sense, eternal life, it's a promise he's making, just like the promise in Revelation 2. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the fruit of the tree of life. So there's no place for boasting in eternal life. There's no place for ego There's no place for lifting yourself up above somebody else and saying, well, I've got eternal life. I must be better than you. It's a promise Jesus is making to you because you can't get it. The cherubim are barring the way. But Jesus wants you to have it. John chapter 5. If you flip over a little bit. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but passes out of death into life. Now there's a lot in this verse and we can't go very deep into it, but another sort of shade or understanding we get from John chapter 5, verse 24 is that we can believe... Through his word. Right? He who hears my word and believes him who sent me. we got to hear it. Jesus is the word. The scriptures are the word of God. Breathed out by the Spirit. We can understand what we need about eternal life the promise he's making, we can understand it from words that are written down in our language that God recorded for us. I I mean, it's almost embarrassing how much he's done to get to achieve all this and how little we've done. Right? I mean, like, when when you're trying to do something in your house, you're trying to do a task and somebody comes in and just does everything and you kind of stand there because you don't know what you're doing, you know, you get all red-faced and you're like, well, can I at least get you some water? You know, can I, can I make some coffee? Because you know what you're doing, I have no idea what you're doing. Right? Well, that's, that's that situation, like times a million, what, what God is doing, what He's describing here. The overcoming and the belief that you're supposed to grab onto, He's communicated it to you in, in words that you can understand. He didn't hide it and say, you know, climb up to this mountain and sit here and Alm for, you know, 30 days and then I'll give you a letter. And then own for another 30 days, and I'll give you another syllable. I mean, he's made it painfully, like right in front of you all the time, convicting you of your sin. Kind of obvious. Right? Um, that, that's one point. The other point from 524 is what the eternal life involves is also avoiding judgment. I mean, again, when we say eternal life, it's like it's this nebulous kind of idea, fuzzy, like I'm alive, but I'm not gonna be in this world forever. So what is eternal life like really? Okay, this is a I would say a keystone part of eternal life. You do not face judgment. Big promise. Big promise. God is holy. He's he's not, he, being true to his own character, he's not even able to just excuse sin, right? He states that when he kind of shows Moses his back, right? He says, but not punish, not failing to punish the guilty. He can't fail to punish the guilty. That's what Romans goes painfully into detail about to, to show why he can be just and fair and justify a bunch of sinners, is because he sacrificed his son to do it. Right? He's just. He poured out everything that you deserve and everything every person deserved. He poured out that on Jesus and said, all right, that makes me just. And because Jesus took it voluntarily, willingly, that made him the justifier of a bunch of sinners. That's why when we have eternal life, we don't face judgment. It's not because we avoided it Besides, how are you going to sidestep judgment? Like, are you going to hide from God? Right? David says that in the Psalms. You know, if I go down to Sheol, you're there. If I go hide in the caves, you're there. You can't get away from God. There's no sidestepping judgment, but there is a promise that if you have eternal life, you won't face it. Okay, John chapter 6. We could, if we had time, read the whole chapter of John 6. I mean, bread of life, I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. Um, But we'll just look at one verse. Uh, John 6, verse 27. Well, we'll look at two, sorry. Verse 27, Jesus says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him... The Father, God, has set his seal. So now Jesus says, To him who overcomes, I'll grant to eat of the tree. Oh, and here's the food you need to do that. I mean, it just gets more and more and more sort of one-sided in who's doing the work here. Jesus wants to grant you the access to the tree. There's no way you can get to the tree. And he says, If you overcome, you can have the tree. And here's the food you need. To overcome. And here's the words you need, right? That's the same idea here in John chapter 6, right? At the very end of it, he says, the words that I'm speaking are spirit, right? The flesh has no benefit. The words that I'm speaking to you are spirit. His words are the food that we need to overcome. He's doing everything he can to get you individually not just mankind, because he told us it himself. Many, many, many will go to destruction. God's actually not even in the business of saving mankind. all He's in the business of saving every individual who's ever existed. Individually. So he's trying to save you by getting you back to this tree. And giving you everything you need to overcome to get to that tree. That's eternal life. And it's not, it's not a, a flip of a coin. It's a promise. The God who can't lie promised it. Right? So it's something to hold on to. The, the other verse in John chapter 6 is verse 40. And this, this is like one of my just absolute favorite verses in the Bible. And I know the older I get, I keep adding to that list. Like I have a favorite verse here, a favorite verse here. Maybe when I'm a grown up, so to speak, all the verses will be my favorite verses. right? So, so John chapter 6 verse 40, Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father. Right? This is what God wants. This is what he's trying to achieve. That everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, And I myself will raise him up on the last day. He says, I am going to do the raising up. This is what God wants. This is what God wants for everybody. Is that the people who behold me, right, and believe in me have eternal life. And I like how Jesus takes ownership of the resurrection. That's my favorite part of this verse is when Jesus kind of says, I myself will raise him up on the last day. It's like Jesus is personally looking at you and saying, I'm excited about raising you up. I'm looking forward to raising you up on the last day. That's exciting stuff. I mean, that's real. Like we think like this, oh, you know, you need to leave religion alone and get back into the real world. This is the real world. This is real. Okay, one more verse in John. We're not going to go through the whole book. Flip over to John chapter 17, if you would. John 17 and verse 3. This is the famous prayer. Um, I've actually started calling it the Lord's Prayer um, because it's the, it's the prayer that the Lord offered. I mean, um, this w- when, when, when he's praying to the Father, this is what he prayed. Uh, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but we'll just look at verse 3. Uh, Jesus says in John 17, verse 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So now overcoming doesn't seem so big anymore. I mean, it's still toil. But here it's defined as, this is eternal life. Knowing God is overcoming. Do you see that? Revelation says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. That's, That's eternal life. Here we have in John 17, Jesus saying, this is eternal life that you may know, or that they may know, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Knowing God is overcoming. Again, it's like God keeps taking work away from us. Like, nope, I'm not going to let you do that. Nope, I'm not going to let you do that. You are going to have to know me to overcome. There's, there's, There's no way around it knowledge of me is overcoming. That's what Jesus is saying. And so, on the flip side of that, it's like, okay, well that seems a whole lot easier. Like, I don't have to go climb some huge mountain. I just have to know God. But then now you flip it around, it's like, okay, but he did call it overcoming. So maybe knowing God is like kind of hard. I think you should expect it to be. Um... I think we're given lots and lots of different pictures in the Bible about what it feels like to kind of see God. Like, he he doesn't show himself the way we, we look at each other, right, face to face, like this, because he told Moses, a man can't do that and live, right? But what he did say is, he gave us when prophets were faced with an image of God, what was their response? down on the floor, down on the ground, don't look. You know, I, I can't e- even Jesus when when he brought the big catch of fish. Peter said, "Depart from me, Lord. I'm I'm a sinner." I mean, that was like God in the flesh doing something that was like kind of naturally miraculous. But think about the prophets who saw the throne, right? Like the so I, I wish I had put the passage down, but I saw the glory of the image of the of the throne of God, right? It's like six things removed from actually seeing God. And what does he do? He throws himself down on the ground and says, I shouldn't be here. I'm going to die. So knowing God is not going to be easy. When you look at the people who've come kind of close to seeing Him, their reaction, right? It's not going to be easy In in a sense because of the choices we've made in our life. That's what makes it hard. Because every reaction to, to that, seeing that about God was, I'm a sinner. Not like, oh, I'm too short. Or my muscles aren't big enough. The prophets never said, oh, well, you know, oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't dress right. What they said was, I'm a sinner. Right? And so it's going to be hard knowing God. But when we think of overcoming, I think we can think of it in terms of getting to know God, right? Knowledge of Him, not in fact, but in action. God would do this, so I'm going to know Him by doing what He would do. And that's going to make you really weird in this world. I mean, you're going to be weird. Because look what they did when God came. They killed Him. So overcoming is sort of easy because all this really is is knowing God. But it's not. And God doesn't, didn't design it to be easy. You have to know Him. You have to want to know Him. Okay, we'll look at a couple of passages that, um, from some of Paul's epistles. Let's look in Romans chapter 6. Um, And then we'll be done uh, after these these passages here. In Romans 6, again, what what a lot of Romans is about is Paul making the case and trying to say, hey, everyone is a sinner. The Jews had some advantages. The Gentiles had some disadvantages. Nobody, nobody is holy. Um, And in Romans 6, verse 20... Um, Paul says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul couches it in terms of who you're a slave to. And the way he he describes it here, you don't don't have a choice to not be a slave. You are a slave. Every one of you in this room, you're a slave. You're either going to be a slave to sin Or you're a slave to God. And what Paul is saying here is the only way to receive the free gift of eternal life is to enslave yourself to God. Which again sounds kind of hard. But what did Jesus say in Matthew 11? Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'll give you rest. Being a slave of God is way, way more forgiving. In fact, it's the only thing that's forgiving compared to being a slave of the world where there is no forgiveness. And in Galatians chapter 6, um, we'll look at one more verse here. Galatians 6 verse 8. Paul says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap Eternal life. So, here we have a little bit of insight into what it means to get to know God. Like, okay, I can, you know, this. you're just using a bunch of terms like eternal life, know God, overcome. I mean, what, what does it look like? Well, Paul says it looks like here, sowing. Where are you spending your effort? Is your effort just taken over and owned by physical things? The effort that you're putting in, and I mean on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, each hour, why why am I making this effort? If you can't answer that question with Scripture, you're sowing to the flesh. I mean, that's the easiest way I know how to put it. If you're making effort and you're like, man, I'm working hard here. Am I really doing the right thing? Well, if you can answer that question with Scripture, yes, you're doing the right thing. Right? That's what Paul says here. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. That's part of that overcoming. That's part of that getting to know God. All of these phrases we've been using. right? You're not working your way into eternal life. You're overcoming. Because it's a free gift. We just read that in Romans 6. You cannot defeat a flaming sword-wielding angel. I mean, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. That was one angel. What are you going to do? You're not getting into the garden, but you do have to overcome to be granted access. Okay, so now I have some questions for you to think about. How do you think about promises? Are they something that's exciting to you? I mean, and I, again, promises of men, you sort of have to guard yourself. Okay, I don't want to get too excited because this person's kind of a flake. You know, I don't really trust them. Or this person over here always keeps their promises, but still, you know, I don't know. This person is still a person. How do you think about promises from God? Does that, like... You have every reason to, like, get super excited about that. He never fails. Never fails. Do you hold on to them? Is it something like you think about and you say, I'm going I'm to withstand because I can hold on to this promise. Do you imagine sometimes what it will be like if the promise is kept? like when you're a kid maybe you're promised a bike and you're you're daydreaming about riding the bike like oh I can't wait till I get the bike right you daydream about it you think about it do you do that with God's promises like do you sit back and daydream and say man like no temptation ever really like I don't have to fight constantly what my my flesh wants to do. I think these are good things for us to do. Daydream about the promises God has made. Right? Let them be something that motivates you. So as I said, uh, kind of at the beginning, there are some people who struggle with promises. and And I... I left it at that because I want to flesh that out a little bit here and say I think a little bit of that creeps into all of us. Um, it's really, I don't want to say you don't have anyone in your life who's done this, but it's very rare to know someone who's who's never failed on a commitment. There may be some people out there who've, for you anyway, have never failed, but there's no pe- no person anywhere who's never failed. right? So a little bit of that that. Guarding yourself kind of creeps in right don't do that with god's promises. like let the guard down completely and say, "Man, I believe wholeheartedly, without reservation that he's going to do this that's hard to do because we're trained by our interaction with the people around us to not be given over to a promise like that but this is not people we're talking about this is God in, in Titus Paul is introducing himself in the letter and he says um, you know God who cannot lie promised eternal life ages ago and it's different to say God does not lie than it is to say God cannot lie. I mean, I I know some people that I could say with confidence, that person doesn't lie. But they can. A person can lie. God cannot lie. It's impossible. So there's no reason to guard yourself and protect yourself from God disappointing you. So, my encouragement to you in this lesson, um, in general, think about God's promises, right? Like like Joshua was telling Israel nothing's ever failed. Think about the promises kind of generally, but think about eternal life too as a promise that He's made over and over and over and over promised eternal life, right? And hold on to it, but examine yourself. Are you overcoming? I mean, nowhere is eternal life ever, the promise of it, ever made unconditionally. Never. It is always conditional. Right? In, in, our, in our class this morning, I didn't make the point, but when, when Robin asked the question, you know, in these battles, there's God's part and there's people's part, right? And so kind of what's going on there? Like, who gets the glory, so to speak? Well, God gets the glory because what it seems like he's doing, in my opinion, and, and he does here with salvation, is God always does what we can't. And then he leaves what we can to us and says, now do it. You can be dunked in water. right? But you can't die for everyone else's sins. God did what you can't do. You can't forgive yourself. Right? but through obedience you can be forgiven okay? so think about eternal life as that promise um, and think about the fact that God desires it it's not, a, it's not a race he's like let's see who makes it he's done everything from the front end to try to push you over the top but you've got to do some climbing right? you've got to overcome Um, So the last thing I would say is if you have any doubt, any doubt about your state with respect to eternal life, please tell somebody here, hey, I've just got doubt. I don't understand this or I don't understand that or I'm not sure about this. Doubt has never been a sin. Right? Talk it out. Um, open the scriptures and look at what God says about eternal life and how you can be sure that you have it. If you want to um, let someone know today, you can do that during this song that we're about to sing, or you can do it after the song, anytime. This is just something to get us thinking about um, our relationship with God. So, thank you.